Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sensational, the special educational needs podcast, which is brought to you by With Slap Boop. Our podcast is all about celebrating neurodiversity and empowering parents, carers and professionals with further knowledge and support. Here at With a Slap Boop, we understand the amazing work that teaching professionals across the country are doing and in what can sometimes be fairly pressurised environments. And so we hope with this podcast to offer some insight and some practical advice that can be used in the classroom. My name is Claire and I'm the events manager for With Slap Group and I'll be hosting today's session focusing on autism-friendly classrooms. Now I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast one of my favourite people to work with who has a wealth of experience supporting school staff as well as parents and carers, and that is Anne-Marie Harrison from Ideas of Fresh Education. So welcome to the podcast, Anne-Marie. Now, I know I've given a bit of an introduction there, but would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? So thanks for that lovely introduction, Claire. Um, I'm Anne-Marie Harrison, and I run um, a, a independent service for families and schools to support them working in any way, any capacity at all with their children with autism. My uh, little business is called Ideas Fresh Limited and my background and sort of trigger to roll into that was really um, influenced mostly by the time that I spent working in schools and then also working in um, early years and working with the National Autistic Society. And my absolute sort of passion and, and love, really, of supporting families and learning so much from them. And like many people in the field, have got um, you know personal interest as well. But I think you know the fact that I've met so many people and yeah. worked in so many different countries, um, all in the field of autism. Um, I just feel like I learn all the time, and and I love that opportunity yeah. to share those experiences, share those stories. Brilliant. Okay, Anne-Marie. So before we continue on with our questions, I think it's really important to mention that with the time we have today, this will be sort of a whistle-stop tour um, to autism-friendly classrooms. On an individual level, it's really important that the development and diversity of the autistic learner is understood in order to successfully implement something like an autism-friendly classroom. Absolutely right. Okay, so to begin with, in a nutshell... What do we mean by autism-friendly classrooms? And when might it be time for a school to consider one? I think that's a really great start, Claire. And I think, um, you know, with all the focus and the chat and the talk around um, COP26, we could almost take the same sort of approach, really, because the impact of things around us, people around us, and the impact that they have or so what I'm hoping to sort of stir up in our thinking today and just kind of try and open our hearts and minds to determine whether perhaps we need to look more closely at the environment our children are being exposed to. And I certainly take the um, perspective that uh, Dr. Luke Bearden talks about when he um, explains sort of autism as a kind of golden globe. And his take is that the environment plus autism equals the outcome or the behaviours. So I think it's really helpful for us to sort of, you know, I'm looking forward to talking about how we can really create that sort of golden globe classroom and our own take on COP26. Brilliant. Okay. 
Um, so can you provide us with some examples of what an autism-friendly classroom might look like and the positive impact these can have on children? I certainly, and I think as we talk more today, there's going to be sort of more of those naturally come up from various questions. But I think a really nice start is that very point, the starting point. And I, I think a warm but appropriate welcome is a really important focus to begin with. You know, we yeah. sometimes rush into our children's room in the morning full of energy and, and bounce them away with enthusiasm because yeah. we know that they're okay with that. Or for some children, we might more gently sort of go in yeah, and wake them up. Yeah. You know, there's no right or wrong. And we know sort of how our own children will respond to that kind of yeah. waking up, don't we? And I'm sure you know that with yours. You know which one's like yeah. a, a bad Yeah, yeah. Or for when wake up in a exactly. <laughs> I think, you know, perhaps putting that approach into our classroom is is really helpful, that sort of you know, posting a register maybe and doing a more of a general welcome for some children might be better because it's a bit less intense. You know, having a high five yeah, at the classroom door or, you know, it's okay to walk past your teacher if you've got your head down and you're not quite there yet with your morning. You maybe just need a quiet space or maybe you are that child that needs a more active space. But I think, you know, what we need to be aware of in that initial start is, how we sort of challenge ourselves and, you know, why we sort of do the things we do. You know, are we calling a register because it's just what we do? We're kind of conditioned mm -hmm. to do it. It's safe and we sort of, you know, are checking in who's there. But, you know, can we do that differently? Is there sort of a broader yeah. outside the box approach that perhaps creates a more positive, more gentle start for our particular children? I mean, to be honest, if this is where I was in my sort of face-to-face um, -face training, I'd be sharing some examples of sort of different uses of visuals and how we can implement them. You know, it yeah. might be photographs or even, you know, lolly sticks, tennis balls. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've used all of those um, and know families and, and schools that have with enormous success yeah. in creating that autism-friendly classroom. So... You know, it's about balancing the directive and the non-directive, perhaps, you know, knowing our own individual children. And hopefully if that has whetted your appetite for more, then, you know, please do contact me for delivering training yeah. at your school. Mm -hmm. You know, in the meantime, we've got to remember calendars and visuals aren't just for Christmas. You know, we all get the advent yeah. calendars out, don't we, at this time of year. But actually, oh, yeah, yeah. Those sorts of strategies and structures are what create the very essence of an autism-friendly classroom. Okay. And um, so moving on now, have you got like a pupil story you could share with us to example the starting point of a child, you know, what was implemented and how, you know, implementing it has helped the child? Yeah, definitely. Lots, really. And I think it's a really nice um, sort of focus, as I said at the start, the value of sharing people's stories and I know um you know Guy, uh, Guy Raz who wrote how I built this whilst he's not in any way a neurodiverse specialist but he really reflects on the richness and the wealth that we can learn from understanding each other's stories and mm -hmm. so I think that's what I'll do I'll I'll talk us through a particular story yep. so Great. I'm going to take a little girl Lexi who's seven yeah and uh, she's from West Yorkshire and she attends a mainstream 
school. She's in year three now. And she was described as disruptive and interrupts all the time. She likes to talk about unicorns. She takes her shoes and socks off in class and throws them across the class. And she cries when she's asked to do anything, never completes a task and won't join in activities. And I'm sorry if that sounds so negative, but I'm sharing the story as it was sort of this is the start shared with point, me. Isn't it? Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at those sort of, that's the what was happening. So let, let's yeah. just try and think, right, well, why was that happening? So I'm going to sort of, first of all, put a question mark out to all our listeners, Claire. And the question mark is probably around, and we can't answer it today, but it is just around thinking, when is it? too soon to start and in my opinion yeah. it never is never. So, yeah what was happening in year one what was happening in reception you know here we are at year two in this situation yeah. but obviously we can't deal with all of that today but it's just something to think about isn't it you know and but, sometimes I think um you know we we sort of overlook things because of a child's age or particular stage in school but for our children, it's so important that we just look at that bigger picture all of the time. Yeah. You know, what will this look like in X number of years? So we can see here from Lexi that, you know, she obviously had a lot of fear. And, you know, a fear will increase anxiety, which then increases those sensory receptors. It all locked on to Absolutely. It's a real domino effect, Claire, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, therefore seeing the shoes and socks fly and, the uncertainty perhaps yeah. of what's going on in the classroom. So she doesn't know when she should interrupt or when she shouldn't. And that, you know, that sort of disrupting things at the wrong time. Our children pick up on that and that really does build into sort of poor self-esteem and that poor self-belief and that belief that like you can't finish anything and everything's overwhelming so we're kind of on a bit of a downward spiral then yeah and I think that you know that's a really sort of important thing that we need to focus on so we've got to think right well how can we deal with those elements really of, of fear of uncertainty of self-esteem and for Lexi what what happened was there was a more sort of structured welcome so she had a little carpet tile yeah. that she could collect and actually all the children did and they all brought in their own. So it wasn't a case of school having to provide them. Some of them had a little blow up cushion. Some just had a cushion to sit yeah. on. Some had a carpet tile to sit on. So and um, the teacher got all the kids as an activity to draw around the hand and laminate it. And she cut it, got the, all the children to cut out three each. And these were then used to like help the children to know, you know, how many times they could ask a question during a session or, you know, they're having yeah. a little discussion or yeah. a debate. Once they'd kind of spent their little hands, then, you know, that, that was kind of, that was, um, was done really. And then I think that helps with consistent communication because mm -hmm. I know I was traveling recently and. I saw this poor woman really confused because the security man at the airport was referring to the trays that we put our things in to go through security yeah. as bins. And she kind of was looking for this bin, you know, and she couldn't work out yeah. what was going on. And I thought, yeah. 
all over. There's a, a reminder, isn't there, that we all triple absolutely yeah. in all systems. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think like the uncertainty bit, the teacher was really more mindful of of being um, you know, clear in her communication and certainly the laminated hands helped with that. And, you know, she had a clacker to hold when it was her turn to speak. So she was using those visuals as a really useful kind of message to the class, not just to let me. Yeah. And I think for Lexi then, her self-esteem was already improving because she didn't feel that she was, you know, wasn't getting there and wasn't doing things correctly. And I think, you know, the teacher also took a much more less is more approach and started doing things which we'll probably, um, you know, we've covered before and I'm sure it'll come up again. When we talk about sort of, you know, giving a child an opportunity to finish something rather than just to start it and end on that failure. So much better to, you know, give them that opportunity to finish and end up on that moment of success. So, you know, that's sort of what they did there. So I hope that little story just highlights some of the strategies and ideas that we can translate into yeah, any absolutely. situation, really. Yeah. No, no, that's that's great stuff, Anne-Marie. Thanks ever so much. So we'll move on to our next question now. Um, so some teaching professionals may have concerns over what a change in the classroom might mean for the other children in the class as well. And so they may question, is it actually fair to implement these changes for the autistic learner when looking at the class as a whole? What are your thoughts on this? And I love that, that we've sort of led nicely onto that, haven't we? Because yeah, we kind of yeah, touched on the very idea of using a whole class approach. And my yeah. thoughts are that um, when I worked in nursery and in schools and then more latterly in university, our profession, and I'm kind of speaking sort of bluntly really, but I think it's okay because it's my profession yeah. too. So I think our profession are a bit guilty of sort of clinging to the known. And, you know, a bit like yeah. our children, we, we like our routine, we like our... Um, you know, uh, way way of doing things, our structure, absolutely. And James Clear, actually, um, another guy who I I think is a a fabulous author, and he um, wrote a really kind of personal story called Atomic Habits. And he refers to these kind of structural, habitual ways of working as our fear break. And he says (laughs) that it kind of puts a break on as sort of taking the risk of doing something different or doing something differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really true, isn't it? That sometimes we, you know, we cling to the known because it feels safe. And what we need to do is have that power, you know, be empowered to like accelerate into that world of of unknown. And I'm old enough to have sort of remembered and, and worked in primary school when water was first talked about and there was such a drama in the staff room. It was, oh, the children are going to be going out all the time. They're going to be spilling water. It's going to be everywhere. And everyone was horrified at this idea of children <laughs> having their own cup on their table, <laughs> having water. How could it possibly work that they could have water in the classroom? And actually, you know, I've also witnessed the calming sort of influence that actually... Once that was introduced, and yes, initially I think there was a bit of novelty and everybody got hold of it. But once it's introduced, <laughs> it's kind of just part of every day, isn't it? It becomes, yeah. as yeah. Um, James Clear would say, it becomes your atomic habit. 
And I think we can use things for whole classes that become an atomic habit. And, you know, I've seen the calmness that a schedule can have on the yeah. whole class and the teacher because it helps you know what you're meant to be doing next. Yeah. And I think as well, you know, um, I've talked to teachers who've used things like they've had a box of um, old, you know, earphones. So not necessarily, you know, specially purchased for the child with sensory yeah. hearing. Mm -hmm. And one yeah. teacher told me that she had this box and she said that two thirds of the children at some point would go and get earplugs or earphones and she said, you had the yeah. wire cut off. It was just literally, you know, old sort of headphones and things. Yeah. So, you know, there are ways and means. And I know when I worked in school, I always had a, a fiddle tray. And I would say, yeah. you know, again, it certainly wasn't just our, you know, autism or neurodiverse support label children. It. it was, you know, yeah. all the kids, exactly right, Claire, benefited. And if you think about ourselves, you know, we pick a pen up, we fiddle, you know, we're all sensory beings. So, you know, yeah. I think it's fair to say that actually, if we are putting something in place because it's been triggered by a need of one of our neurodiverse, maybe autistic or, you know, ADHD, PDA yeah. sort of labeled children, then I, I think, you know, it's fair that our neurodiverse children are actually pioneers of positive change yeah, in that classroom. So like that. let's let them be like pioneers of change, definitely. Yeah. Brilliant. On to our next one, which still focus around concerns that teachers may have. So for teachers that are worried about putting additional equipment in room in the, in the classrooms, you know, if this might lead to some disruptive behaviour or, or whatnot, what advice would you offer to them? Anna, I think it's to kind of make sure that we are um, decisive about implementing equipment and that we are clear and we make sure that it's going to be successful because of how we've explained it. So I think, you know, being very clear about its purpose mm -hmm. um, and its use, for example, um, you know, for example, sort of pre-pandemic, I know a number of primary schools were sort of using pop-up tents um, in their classrooms with sort of a blanket and a, a floor cushion. And then post-pandemic, you know, people have perhaps had to do things differently and think more a little bit out of the box. But again, it could be that children could just be invited to, you know, bring something from home that feels comfortable for them and that yeah. makes them feel um, calmer. So I think we are, we are talking about putting additional equipment in the classroom. A real core principle is what's the purpose of it? What's the point of it? Yeah. And have we communicated yeah. that well? And I think, again, we kind of maybe coil back at the fear of having blankets sort of floating all around the classroom and, yeah. and what have you. But I know a, a school where that was actually put in place and a little boy mm -hmm. observed his friend and he said, I've got a little quote here, he said, he needs his blankets lots and he needs it much more than me. But I think he must be sad or scared sometimes. So I stay with him now because I'm like Spider-Man and I'm brave. And I thought, oh, isn't that great, you know, oh, where we're talking yeah. about putting something oh. in the classroom. Here we are answering our own difficulties sometimes about social interaction, yeah. friendship, 
you know, who'd have thought a blanket in the classroom would strike up that friendship and that, yes, you know, social awareness of of peers. We try and teach that. And here we are, children are learning themselves. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Um, So, right, on to our next question. So, Many schools might have a policy in place, um, you know, that means they send children out of a class to be cal- to be calmed down rather than disrupt the rest of the class. Um, so you have your own take on this, um, don't you? So what, what would your response be to someone who um, might be using that sort of method? I do, and I, and I, and I think sometimes I kind of, you know, as I said at the beginning, let's stir up some hearts and minds, and I think this this yeah. does particularly stir up hearts and minds because it is a different way of working. It's a more positive mm-hmm. and a less kind of punitive punishment sort of approach because I'm an absolute advocate yeah. for setting kids up to achieve. And I have to question, Absolutely. if we have children who are trying to exit the classroom, then why are they? And that's what we've got yeah. to establish. You know, there must be some anxiety or some you know, something going on, there's a what, why and how that we've got to explore there. And, you know, if we are exposing children to classrooms and to lessons, then they're obviously not classroom or lesson ready if they are not bent on getting out of that situation. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, it's kind of almost back to our fears, isn't it? How do we address our fears? Well, you know, if you're scared of flying, it's unlikely that the very first flight you'll take is a long haul with no preparation. Baby steps, yeah, it's isn't that it? whole baby steps exactly. So you know, we'd plan and we'd, you know, also be kind of motivated because we'd know what's coming at the end of it. So you know, maybe motivation is also a key yeah. here. And so you know, is a social environment a key point for escape and? I know a year eight child, you know, told his mum that he can go to the nurture room and use the computer Mm -hmm. and play computer games. So obviously he's going to do everything that means he he gets out of of his classroom. But he also highlighted a point that actually when he does do work in the nurture room, he's allowed to use the computer instead of a pen. So maybe there's an issue there that, you know, Yes, a computer would go into the classroom. Yeah. And it could yeah. be around yeah. the fear of being asked to use. Fear of the, yeah. So, you know, maybe him going into the classroom for the final 10 minutes equipped with his computer. Yeah. And then coping with that and coming out at the same time as everybody else is a much more successful way to work. And then slowly, gradually building that back in time rather than forward yeah. in time. So. Kind of, yeah. you know, ba- backward chaining, I think, is one of the phrases really that, you know, we kind of coined yeah. to describe that. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. So um, moving on to our next question now. So what about class timetables and children that won't engage with, you know, the activities that are scheduled to take place yeah. on that particular lesson or that particular day? And I think that, again, is, um, you know, certainly we've got some tough questions and I know I'm making some sort of um, tough requests, but I think my first one would be, you know, review the engagement partnership between sort of teacher and, and learner here. Because with an engagement, you know, both parties 
are fully aware of the commitment and the expectations. And I yeah. think sometimes for our children, we, we slip into that assumed knowledge and we slip into sort of assuming that the children know what's going on because there's a visual schedule yeah. there. There's pictures there. But do we know that they are understood and that they're conveying the message? And are they being presented in such a way that they're irresistible, that they're interesting, that they're clear and that they're appealing? And if there are choices, have we communicated those? You know, so it's kind of back to our previous question in a way, isn't it? When I yes. was almost talking about tolerance levels, really. And, you know, can we sort of support the tolerance levels so that perhaps we need to revisit, um, yeah. you know, our children do need to know the point of, of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I think, you know, just being mindful um, that sort of, you know, sometimes we do have this um, reluctance to be more sort of flexible and yeah. perhaps therefore that's created a bit of a, a strict framework. And in fact, we're not communicating when there is some sort of choices and fluidity around yeah. that. So. I think, yeah, reviewing kind of what the understanding is. Genially. Yeah, yes. Okay, right. So moving on. We know that an autistic learner may have difficulty in understanding um, certain behaviours or actions. So how can teachers or professionals support in a child communicate and explain behaviour choices to them in a way that the child will understand? And I think my instinctive response here, Claire, is that, um, you know, get familiar um, with the child, but also get familiar with social stories because they're a really useful way of communicating the social expectation. And, you know, I really would encourage our listeners to have a look at Carol Gray's um, website, the social story. She is the kind of trademark owner of social stories and she's got some really fabulous examples and you know I recall when I did my social story training it was a revelation that actually you know how revealing a social story can be in terms Mm -hmm. of an autistic child understanding sort of what's trying to be communicated more easily and more readily and I think you know there's been a, a culture sort of sometimes that's previously confused social stories and and they've become a bit more of a kind of um guideline which isn't what they're supposed to be at all you know they're supposed to really offer that sort of um explanation around our crazy social world that we live in you know after all why is it okay to jump around a football match and and shout hooray but not at a funeral and, and yeah. you know, yeah. who teaches that? Who tells us that? We, we're kind of learning that as we go along, aren't we? And, or, you know, more mm-hmm. typically perhaps developing children for want of a better description, they kind of just pick that up, don't they? You know, pick we have to out. keep yeah. revisiting it. Yeah. You know, they might trip up or slip up sometimes, but not all of the time. And I think when you're socially tripping up lots of the time, then again, you know, that can have a really negative impact. So the more we can do, I think, to yeah. help our children understand those choices, then, um, you know, the better it's going to be for them. 
Okay. And um, so I just realized looking at our notes here that I missed that question. to go back. Sorry, just trying to keep you on your toes. I was thinking, oh, um, oh, okay then. I was thinking, God, where is this one? <laughs> Yeah, so we'll go, we'll just jump back a step. School is often a place filled with, you know, lots of rules and expectations. For some children, they really thrive on this structure um, and it fits for them. For others, it can be more difficult to adhere to the rules and regulations. And so what, what are your beliefs on, on classroom rules? I think I'd go back to that sort of initial communication um, yeah. point because, uh, and actually it's a funny story sort of springs to my mind, Claire, when you ask that question, because, um, and it, it's a personal story, but uh, it's a um, little boy when he was staying um, with us for a little while and we had, um, we had a few chickens that we were looking after and yes. he insisted on wandering around in nothing but his Wellington boots. And so obviously we were a bit concerned that this wasn't safe with the chickens. So yes. we said to him, the rule is pants on when you go to see the chickens. Yeah. So he knew the rule and, he, and that was fine. Anyway, he didn't put his pants on to go and see the chickens. And he came back and we said to him, well, you know, we did say, and yeah. then, you know, it was a little bit sore. And he said to us, but you didn't tell me it would hurt. And do you know what? Oh, my. That okay. kind of, okay. I just yeah. thought, you know, we can learn so much from our little people. Yeah. Because yeah, he's right. in how we communicate. Absolutely. Them. So, yeah, yeah have a classroom room rule. By all means, but know the point of it. And not only yes. know the point of it, communicate the point of it. Why yeah. is it there? Yeah. What is the point? We assumed yeah. that that little boy would know that if he got pecked by a chicken, it, it yeah. would be particularly it might be Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So I think, you know, never assume that knowledge, that sort of, yeah. and, you know, being mindful of that literal understanding that lots of our children have but you know that whole in school so many times I've, I've seen this happen you know the little fire thing mm -hmm. says break in an emergency well yeah I dropped my dinner plate so internally my belief like is an that's an emergency yeah. so you yeah. know I'm abiding by the rules and breaking that in an emergency so I think, you know, sometimes it's about keeping each other safe and understanding yeah. that's what rules are for and for keeping society safe. But we need to be sure that we are communicating to that degree about yeah. those rules yeah. and what the point um, of rules are. And I would say as well, a golden rule would be keep them to a minimum. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I'd say avoid pointless rules. I remember one time um, I was working in school with a not uh, in this capacity actually supporting yeah. um, a little boy um, in school, and I was doing a visit, and the teachers were telling me that you know they'd had real big issues with this particular little boy taking his socks off and rolling them yeah. into a football when it wasn't their class's turn to have a football on um, on the field. Yeah. 
And I kind of found myself saying to them, should we just take a step back and have a think here? Why yeah. is it not that everyone can have balls? You know, it, it is, is it a safety thing? Is it a number thing? And when they kind of took a step back, they said, to be fair, not every kid wants to play with balls anyway. So even yeah. if it's your class turn, it might only be four or five of those children who want to do want it. To kick yeah. the ball about. So they mm. really readdress their playground yeah. rules. Yeah. And I think that's it, isn't it? Let's avoid pointless rules. Yeah. Okay. Some very good points there. <laughs> and funny story. Yeah. The chicken um, story did, did spring to mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're back on track with our questions. So, following um, following the questions um, that we've just gone through around behaviours, what about if a teacher has a child who they themselves behaves in a certain way? For example, that child sits on other children's knees or persistently raises their hand. You know, what advice could you offer there? I suppose it sort of comes back to what you've just been saying about, you know, taking a step back and rethinking, but we'll go on, Alan, you talk. Well, I've actually just got this gorgeous image of this little person sort of finding themselves a space and perhaps, you know, pushing the little bottom back in their elbows. Yeah. Um, but it's not such a comfortable image if the little person is now 17. So I think what yeah. it does do is emphasise the importance to sort of question, you know, why, why, why we're kind of seeing yeah. that behaviour. And, and so that then we can identify the teaching gaps and we can start as early as we can. Like I said, you know, what was happening in reception in year one? You know, so yeah. to start as soon as we notice those behaviours to teach an alternative and you know, if it's a sensory behaviour, then maybe having a beanbag where a child can really nestle down into a beanbag yeah, and have yeah, that same yeah, sort of lovely pressure that that social experience was maybe offering. Mm -hmm. And maybe the in-social yeah. experience, then, you know, offering um, a kind of high five or, or something like that yeah. and, and having that motivator in place. So, maybe having the child's chair marked out more clearly and having a little basket underneath the chair that's full of things that they'll love to play with and they'll love to accept, yeah. you know, so yeah. full of sort of motivators. So, you know, it's our responsibility really to teach an alternative and to teach those kind of social choices. That's the, yeah. that's the thing. Okay. Okay, so in terms of rewards, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of giving rewards? You know, how can they benefit a child's learning and also, you know, their emotional well-being as well? So nicely picked up there, Claire, because I did just throw in that little basket reward. So absolutely, <laughs> that does lead us nicely into this question. So yeah, I've actually got um, a fabulous clip of video, um, which I use in my training, of a young man explaining his gem um, system. And he talks about the fact that he earns a gem for every 10 minutes. And this is when he was at home and they were doing homeschooling. Yeah. And life was a little bit pear-shaped. And his parents were actually letting him have about an hour and a half screen time, which, you know, I know everyone will have their own opinions on that. But, you know, yeah. we're talking sanity here. And so mm -hmm, they worked out that actually if they, rather than just gave him this time, that he sort of earned it, 
then it might be something that, you know, was worth exploring. So they realized that if from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., he got a jar, a, a gem, sorry, in his little jar every 10 minutes, that would only maximize him out on 72 minutes of screen time, which was actually less than what he was getting previously, which was 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it actually worked really, really well. And he loved the fact that he was earning this time. And and I think that's great. You know, if we can put rewards in place that foster that sort of, you know, work ethic ethos really and he felt privileged and he could choose what screen he spent it on and you know it was a really kind of a good model and it models um you know his self-satisfaction and the fact that you know he had a choice and you know it highlights as well that it it had to be like personalized for him you know he needed Mm -hmm. that personal approach and I think um you know again it's great when we put these things in place and they're successful and you think, oh, we've found a motivator that works or a system that's helpful. But I think it's also important that we do keep revisiting it because as you say, the emotional support that that can offer can be really profound, but then it can be damaging if it all falls apart. And what happened was when he went back to school, it all fell apart because of course he couldn't be earning a a jar, you know, a 10 minute, his teacher was yeah. up for that. That's another story. But, you know, anyway, maybe yeah. if she's listened to this podcast and now got a more autism friendly classroom, Golden Globe classroom, she might have personalized jars all over the place with a kid. All over the hey, place. No. Yeah. Who knows? But what happened was um, he actually ended up having um, a system at school that, you know, mm-hmm. kind of worked better for school. So it was actually a sticker. I hate stickers. But I think, you know, in some situations, stickers have a place and they do work. And if they work, that's great. The reason I say I hate stickers, which is such a strong word to use, is because there's a danger that everybody gets them and everybody does stickers. And so it takes away from the the good or the, you know, the the power of it. Special thing, the power, that's it. Yeah, Exactly, definitely right, Claire. It's a bit like the football, isn't it? You know, not not mm-hmm. everybody needs it. Yeah. It's like having water on the yeah. table. Not everybody drinks it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. for not everybody to have a reward scheme that's a physical sort yeah. of thing going on. You know, some children find well done a big enough reward, but a couple yeah. of many of our yeah. children, a social praise is never going to rest as a particularly yeah. meaningful reward. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, um, we want something that's going to support emotional strength and sort of help with sort of some self-regulation as well. So instead of having something going on at home that perhaps gets a treat on a Friday, then try and have something in place. And, and that's what this family did, actually, that you yeah, would have yeah. like 15 minutes screen time before he went to school in the morning. So that from getting up in the morning until um, going out to school was not the mayhem of, you know, loud voices and, and shouting in people's faces. Yeah. But it, it yeah. had been and it was becoming again because they'd lost that kind of leverage with that system that was the jar they yeah. for him. Yeah, the jar, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So they were, what they were trying to do was think, oh, we'll do something on a Friday instead. But it was too long for him. You know, he still needed something before he went to school in the morning and then in the evening. So, you know, again, 
try and, you know, I'm encouraging our listeners really to think of rewards as chunk them out rather than have yeah. it as a end of day or end of week or end of session. You know, we might need mm-hmm. things mid, yeah. you know, and, and we might need to chunk them out in small steps. So, you know, be be really fluid in our thinking when we're planning yeah. reward systems. Now, there's some great, great points there, some great advice. Um, so we're coming to the end of our podcast today. So as we close today, what can you offer your, um, you know, top three tips? for having a successful autism-friendly classroom? Well, I think our first one is um, do our best to create that golden golden globe or COP26 classroom that, you know, really be mindful of the environment and what that looks like. Is it offering a learning space that's active or a learning space that's quiet? You know, um, one of the classrooms I've worked in the children all had decorated their own little learning um, guard, as they called it, and, yeah. and they used yeah. it when they wanted it. So, you know, creating that golden globe. And I think um, my second sort of top tip would be, um, you know, to remember that um, our neurodiverse kids can actually be the pioneers of positive change in classrooms yeah. because yeah. they're creating yeah. our creative thinking. And that's really invaluable. And then a sort of third point would be, you know, question, 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 really um, be determined to explore those sort of what, why, and hows that are going on in in the classroom. And if someone's trying to exit the classroom, then what's happening? Why are they? And how can we support them in being able to be classroom or lesson ready? for that short period of time. So setting them up to succeed. So I hope that helps and and thank you for inviting me to chat to you. Yeah, Claire, it's been great. No, a, a great, a great session. So, so yeah, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. So, a massive thank you to Anne Marie and um, and also to our listeners as well. If you'd like to hear more from Anne Marie, which I'm sure you do after all that fantastic information, you can visit our website and um, www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash resources where you will find a wide range of recorded webinars for both professionals and parents and carers that Anne-Marie has kindly recorded for us. Um, So thanks again to everybody involved, and I hope that you can join us on another podcast in the future. So bye for now.